Well, I would invite you to open your Bible to Titus chapter 2 for our message today entitled, The Christian Purpose. The Christian Purpose. When we read the Gospels, we get a clear picture that the ministry of Jesus drew crowds wherever he went. He had gathering power, as some would call it, the ability to to draw people together. Uh, Whenever he was recognized as he's walking into a town, the people would muster and they would bring the sick and the lame and they would follow him around town as he healed and as he taught. They wanted to hear everything he said until he would move on to the next town. Uh, The presence of Jesus in every city had a massive impact on daily life as long as he was there. In the book of Acts, we learn that when the apostles would spend time in a town, they too would have a significant impact. But in their case, the impact would increase even after they left because the gospel would spread and people would be saved and that would cause upheaval in a good way in the town. There would be momentum beyond the apostles' personal ministry. Unbelievers would be amazed at the transformation that would be happening among the believers. And so we read something like Acts 2 where it says, that the Christians were having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. In Acts 4, Peter and John were arrested because they were preaching the gospel after they had just healed a lame man, and the Pharisees and religious leaders were jealous, and they were afraid of their influence and power waning. And so the Scripture says, even though that they wanted to treat them harshly, they let them go on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. In Acts 5, after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, when the Lord put them to death for lying to the Holy Spirit, uh, the scripture says about the church, none of the rest, that is the rest of the unbelievers, dared associate with, with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. There was something about these Christians that they liked, but they thought, I can't join them because people die there. When Paul was in Ephesus, the gospel had such an impact that the local idol industry started to suffer. And so the guild of idol makers almost started a riot. Acts 19 says that the whole city was filled with confusion. As the church grew and the gospel spread, not only were people saved and coming to faith in Christ, but the shockwaves permeated society. A change in is, or excuse me, the change in Israel and throughout Asia and the Roman Empire was so significant that even in the midst of significant persecution, no one could ex- ignore the impact Christianity was having in the world. Throughout the centuries, Christians have been leading lights in science, in medicine, in education, social progression. And yes, sadly, while it's true that there have been many professing Christians who have taken the name of Christ upon themselves and lived in very ungodly ways, and brought repute on the name of Christ, at the same time, much of the positive change and progression in society is the very result of Christians glorifying God and working for the good of their fellow man and society. If the church had never been born, it's not difficult to imagine where society would be. You can look at many places around the world where there's no influence of the gospel in the society at large, and You find everything from cannibalism to extreme poverty to despotic dictatorships and all kinds of oppression. When a society is hostile to the true and living God, human suffering is always the result. 
in our own nation, while we're still experiencing the afterglow of the general acceptance of Judeo-Christian values and influence, we are quickly seeing that influence wane. But whatever society the church is in, the overflow of the work of salvation in the hearts of individuals and coming together of individuals in the local church should lead to some impact on those around them. In 1 Corinthians 7.14, Paul says that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by, the married, by being married to the believing spouse. That means that an unbeliever married to a believer experiences a variety of blessings from that influence. And so if that's true in the home, it's also true in the workplace, and it's also true in the school. And if it's true on an individual level, when you put the collection of believers together in a city, it ought to have an influence in the city as well as people are pursuing righteousness and living their lives in holiness. That's not always the case, of course, when the number of believers is relatively few in number compared to the rest of the city, where their work doesn't put them in positions of power. Their influence may not be on a large scale, but that is often the case that that, that's what takes place. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Yet your light, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The goal is not to change society per se, the goal is to shine the light of Christ as brightly as we possibly can and be as tasty as we possibly can be so that there can be a greater hearing for the gospel. When a lamp is on and there's a group of people in the room, but someone turns out the light, what happens? Everybody wants the light to turn back on. If you're used to flavorful food and somebody hands you a, a plate of bland food, what do you do? You reach for the salt. Well, with all this in mind, consider this sobering question. If God removed our church from the face of the earth, would our neighbors notice? Or would they even care? We could also ask this question, what opinion about God are we giving to our neighbors? Does our presence in this community as Hope Bible Church, as individuals in your various neighborhoods, does our presence in this city and in this county, in this region, communicate to the world that God so loved the world that He gave His greatest possession that the world might be saved through Him? Or are we communicating that God is content for many people to never hear the name of Christ and never be saved? Thanks to Pastor Leek's leadership, our church has indeed had a significant influence in our region. And we have promoted biblical doctrine and a biblical philosophy of ministry. And we've had strong partnerships with other local churches where the truth of God is proclaimed in the churches and believers are built up. But does our unbelieving community know that we exist? He and others have often said, one of our weakest areas in our church is outreach and evangelism. 
Does the lost and dying world know that there is a group of people here who have the hope that they desperately need? Well, today from Titus 2.14, I want us to consider the Christian purpose. And considering the Christian purpose, I want us to consider your purpose and my purpose and our purpose together as Hope Bible Church. So for the sake of context, let's read verses 1 through 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. I mentioned briefly last week that verse 13 is a number of is one of a number of statements where Jesus is explicitly declared to be God. Before we talk about what is the purpose of the Christian life, we have to talk about who it is that gave himself for us. That's really the main verb here. And so as we examine this passage, our outline is going to follow the grammar of the passage. The the main verb is gave there in verse 14. And there's two purpose clauses that flow from that. The first purpose for which Christ gave himself is to redeem us from every lawless deed. And the second purpose is to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. But before we can talk about the purpose, we have to talk about who gave himself for us. I noted last week, just incredibly briefly, that uh, there's a a way in which Paul stated this, the grammatical construction which definitively states that Jesus Christ in God. If he wanted to say, for example, that uh, our great God is the Father and our Savior is Christ, he would have only had to insert one little word, one article even, before the word Savior, the definite article, what we would call the word the. And that would have made a distinction between our great God and our Savior, but he didn't do that. He wanted to make it explicitly clear that Christ Jesus is our great God and our Savior. And the sad reality is that much ink has been spilled debating what Paul is meaning when he describes that. Is he talking about two members of the Trinity, or about Christ. And so even though we know that the truth of Christ being deity is there, we would do a disservice to ourselves if we just affirmed that and moved on. Because we'd be missing what Paul wants us to know. And that is that our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, gave himself for us. Jesus who is the Messiah, is the glory of God who created all things. He is the great God who is eternal. He is the beginning. He has no beginning and He has no end. He is not bound by space and time. He is transcendent. He is the uncaused causer or the unmoved mover. He is the I am, the one who has always existed. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He has aseity, which means he has life in himself, and he is the source of life to all created beings. He is omnipotent, meaning he can 
He has all the power to do anything he wants that is consistent with his character. Nothing is impossible for God. He's also omniscient. He knows all things past, present, and future, and even all things possible. He is omnipresent. He is personally present at every point in space at the same time, but more personally, he is personally present with you wherever you are. He will never leave you or forsake you. There's nowhere you can go where He is not and you cannot escape His presence. Jesus is the one who Isaiah saw sitting on the throne when the four creatures were surrounding the throne crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy! Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the sovereign judge over every person. And though He is the King of glory, He gave Himself for you. He took off His kingly robe. He removed His signet ring and took off the crown of glory and laid it all aside to step into His creation. To live among those who deserve nothing but His wrath. And instead of breaking us with a rod of iron as He will do to His enemies one day, He came as a Savior. He came to give life to those who were dead. And he did that by giving up his life on the cross to rescue us. Now I ask you, what God does that? What God gives up themselves for their creation? You can scour the earth and learn about all of the world religions and all of the gods that men worship. Which one of them has a savior like our great God? The God of Allah hasn't done that. Excuse me, of Islam. The gods of rain or the God of war or the God of love hasn't given up themselves for anyone. The gods of Hinduism or Taoism or Shinto or the ancient gods of Greece or the modern gods of Africa haven't given up themselves. Only the God of the Bible, Jesus the Messiah, has given himself for us. And he is our great God and Savior. Well, with that incredible reality fixed on our minds, Paul turns our attention to why Jesus gave himself for us. What purpose did Christ intend in leaving his heavenly glory for sinners such as us? Again, Paul provides two purposes here. First, to redeem us from every lawless deed. And second, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Let's consider the first purpose here. Notice the words there in verse 14. To redeem us from every lawless deed. The ESV has a better word-for-word translation when it says, to redeem us from all lawlessness. From all lawlessness. The word redeem means to rescue or to be set free with a particular emphasis on the price that was paid. 1 Peter 1.18 says, You were redeemed, not with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile weight of, of life inherited from your forefathers, but with a precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This is to fulfill the promise that is stated in Isaiah 52, verse 3, where the Lord said to Israel, you, will be, you were sold for nothing, and you will be redeemed without money. More specifically, he writes in chapter 1 of Isaiah, Zion will be redeemed with justice, 
and her repentant ones with righteousness. There is no greater righteousness than the righteousness of Christ. And there's no greater, more perfect justice than that justice that was exerted on Christ as he died as our substitute. Where we were redeemed not with material currency, but with the blood of Christ. Indeed, even the blood of God. Paul exhorted the elders in Acts 20, verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And because it is the blood of God that has redeemed us, it is an eternal redemption. It cannot be undone. Hebrews 9.12 says, Through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all having obtained an eternal redemption. Those who have been purchased by God have an eternal redemption, which means, again, it cannot be undone, nor can it be outdone. No one can walk into the marketplace and lay down a price more than what Christ has paid and win us or purchase us out from under Christ. There is no system of measurement that has values higher than what Christ has paid for us. And so from what have we been redeemed? From what have we been rescued and set free? You see it right there in the text. He says, all lawlessness. This word lawlessness literally means no law. It's a lifestyle of living apart from the standard that God has established. It's not that the person doesn't abide by any law, but rather that they are hostile to the law of God. This term is used 15 times in the New Testament, and every time it's used in a way that could be synonymous with sin or with with wickedness. In fact, 1 John 3, 4 says, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, he says. But clearly, the nuance of the term refers to living apart from the law of God. You know, a lifestyle of lawlessness is what will get many professing believers into hell. Jesus said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These people are like the Pharisees who look good on the outside, but they appeared, they appeared to adhere to the law. But Jesus said to the Pharisees, so you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Really, to be lawless is equivalent to be an unbeliever. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship is light with darkness? So lawlessness is what characterizes unbelievers. It's living in rebellion against the law of God who commands us to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourself. On the other hand, sin or lawlessness is self-oriented living. It's living enslaved to my desires and my passions and my goals. It's defining my life the way I want to define my life. It's being who I want to be and doing what I want to do. This is the very thing that parents need to discipline out of their children. But it's the very thing that our culture has embraced. 
Be whoever and whatever you want to be. But that's lawlessness. The argument of the flesh and the argument of the world is, if you live for yourself, if you live based on your own desires, you will be free. You'll be free from the constraints and expectations of others. You'll be free from arbitrary standards that don't have your best interest in mind. But that's a lie. To live for yourself is to chain yourself to a cruel slave master. To be enslaved to personal desires is to be constantly tossed to and fro without any stability or consistency. The slave master of sin is irrational. It forces you to keep going back to that which only brings you pain and destruction. Everyone enslaved to sin constantly asks themselves, why do I keep doing that? Why do I keep looking at pornography? Why do I keep giving my body to strangers? Why do I keep drowning my troubles in a bottle? Why do I keep trying to escape my pain with drugs? Why do I keep making foolish choices that push away those who love me? Why do I keep exploding in anger? Why? Why do I keep doing this? If you have thoughts like that, the reason is because you are enslaved. You are enslaved to a cruel and irrational master called yourself. You do what you do because you want what you want. You want personal satisfaction. You want fulfillment. You want happiness. And you think you know how to get it. You think your desires are what's best for you. You think fulfilling those desires will calm your soul. You think getting what you want will satisfy you, but it never does. And so the cycle continues. Well, friends, praise be to God that we have a great God and Savior who has redeemed us from enslavement to sin. Those bonds have been cut, and now we are capable of rejecting the lies. Our allegiance has been transferred and we no longer have to be slaves to our sinful desires. We have been set free. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be like in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him so that in order, in order that our body might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Beloved, we have been redeemed from sin and lawlessness. No matter how it feels to you, the power of sin has been cut off in your life. And you now have the power of God to overcome temptation through Christ and the power of the Spirit residing in you, if indeed you have given your life to Christ. Just imagine what would happen in our community if hundreds and in thousands of people stopped living for themselves, stopped being enslaved to the cruel sin, slave master of sin, and instead lived for Christ. What change would take place? Well, this leads to the next purpose for which our great God and Savior gave himself, namely, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There are three components to this purpose, each leading to the next. You can see the three there in that phrase. 
Jesus gave himself to purify us for himself such that we would be his own possession and as his possession, we would be zealous for good deeds. Those are the three components. When we speak of salvation as redemption, it focuses on our enslavement to sin that must be broken. But that's not all that's required for our salvation. We not only need the bonds to be cut, but we need forgiveness for those sins that we've committed. And so when Jesus gave himself, his blood washed away and cleaned us of our sin. And the sin that, we, that he forgave is not just the sin that, that we committed before we came to Christ, but all of the sin from the moment that we were born until the moment that we die, all of it has been washed away by the blood of Christ. Paul describes it beautifully in Ephesians 5.25 when he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Notice that that passage has both the cleansing and the possession elements having cleansed her by the washing of the word, that he might present the church to himself in all his glory, her glory. Forgiveness means to, to send away the sin debt. That's what God promised to do in Jeremiah 31, and Jesus accomplished according to Hebrews 10, 17, where it says, the Holy Spirit testifies to us, and here quotes the Old Testament, their sins and their lawlessness I will remember no more. God promised that he would forgive his people. And by that, he meant that he would push away the thoughts of their sin and he would refuse to think about them. That's written in Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Forgiveness is not only pictured as God sending away the sin, but also as purification. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins were as scarlet, they will be white as wool. Though they are red like crimson, they will be light white like snow. Coming back to Hebrews 9, which I read earlier, that told us about the eternal redemption we have through Christ. We read this in verses 13 and 14 of Hebrews 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, how much more will He cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The cleansing of the conscience is an act of purification. And the reason we need purification is because sinners cannot stand before a holy God and live. You know, it's often been said that God cannot be in the presence of sin. I don't see how that can possibly be true because as we've already said, God is omnipresent. And so he's always in the presence of sinners. In fact, he's even present in hell. His presence in hell is for the purpose of judgment. But he is in our presence even now while we're sinners. The problem is not that God can't be in the presence of sinners. The problem is that sinners can't be in the presence of God. When Isaiah stood before the throne of, of the Lord in Isaiah 6, he cried out as he saw the glory of the Lord, Woe is me, 
for I am ruined. Literally, I am coming apart at the seams. He says, because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw the manifest presence of God and he almost disintegrated. And what kept that from happening is this. Then one of the angels, one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Forgiveness is what allowed Isaiah to stand before the manifest presence of God and live. In the same way, the forgiveness and cleansing we have through Christ's sacrifice enables us to stand as the people of God and not be obliterated by His glory. And so now, we are His possession as His people. We've been rescued and cleansed. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You, have, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You can say it this way, purification leads to possession, and possession leads to practice. We see that here in First Peter when we saw in that phrase, uh, that we are a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Belonging to God demands a change in behavior. God has no interest in rescuing people from hell just so that they can live hellish lives. God does not want to bring the dead to life so that they can play dead. God doesn't wash us clean of the mire so that we can jump right back into the pit again. Rather, God's purpose in purchasing me and you, if you put put your faith in Christ, is so that we will now live for His purposes and not our own. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Beloved, our lives are no longer our own. They belong to Christ. And His purposes should be our purposes. It's not like Christ did us a favor and now He wants us to return the favor. The Christian life is not quid pro quo where where God scratched our need for uh, salvation and now we need to scratch His need for authority. Now the reason that His work on our behalf requires our living for Him is because He owns us. He is our Master. Listen to how Paul describes this in Romans 10, 14. Excuse me, 14, verse 7. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, we, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Did you hear that? For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, master, both of the dead and the living. Now think of it this way. 
One of the ways that rulers throughout history have gained more citizens for their kingdom is by conquering another ruler and thus adding more to their territory and more citizens into their kingdom. The Assyrians conquered the northern tribes of Israel. They exiled some to Assyria, but left others to till the land. Eventually, the Babylonians came along, overtook the Assyrians, and now the citizens of Israel were citizens of Babylon. And this happened time and time again until Rome finally came in, took over the land, and the Jews were subjects of Rome. You get the idea. One of the one ruler conquers another ruler, and now the citizens have a new allegiance. Scripture says that all of us are born bound and enslaved to the masters of sin and death. And Christ came and defeated sin and death by his death and resurrection. And so now we are citizens of his kingdom. And we are his slaves and subjects of his rulership. So there's no option to be saved by him but not live for him. That just is not an option. He is now our Lord and we belong to Him and that inevitably leads to a new life. Now, what should characterize that life? Let's turn our focus back to Titus chapter 2. We saw in Titus 2 verse 12 that we are saved in order that we would be growing in our denial and rejection of ungodliness and worldly desires and that we would be increasingly living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In other words, we should be looking more and more like Christ, our Lord, whose nature and character is righteous and holy. That's what should characterize the Christian life in terms of personal character. But in 14, verse 14, Paul speaks about our purpose in terms of the occupation of our life. What are we seeking to accomplish as we're living sensibly, righteously, and godly? And the answer is right there in the last phrase. You see it. We are to be zealous for good deeds. We ought to be zealous for good deeds. And to be zealous means to give of yourself to something with all of your energy and with all of your strength and with all of your resources. A zealous person makes sacrifices, sometimes life-shaping sacrifices to pursue the object of their zeal. Whether it's time or finances or resources or relationships, everything is worth sacrificing in order to be zealous for something. And so we ought to be a zealous people. We ought to be willing to give of our lives for something. And we see what that thing is here, and that is good deeds. Something is good when it's beautiful and thus attractive, like a beautiful painting that might draw our eyes. Something is good also when it delights our soul. We might describe a song or a book as good, and by that we mean it encouraged us, it delighted us. Something is good because it's beneficial and helpful. You might describe a presentation at work or some teaching as, as good in the sense that it was helpful, it taught you something, it benefited you. Something that is also good when it's useful. We describe a tool as good because it helps us accomplish a task effectively. Beautiful, delightful, beneficial, useful. These are ways to describe goodness. And so when we think about good deeds or good works, we're, we're talking about engaging in activities that are beautiful and delightful in the sense that other people appreciate them and are drawn and attracted by them. And they're also beneficial and useful 
to others and to the Lord. Now in our scripture reading, we read Ephesians chapter 2. And in there you saw verse 10, which I remind you says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only did Christ give himself so that we would be saved, but he gave himself so that we would be zealous for good deeds. And not only did he give himself that we would be zealous for good deeds, but he actually prepared in advance the very good deeds that he intends for us to accomplish. Hope Bible Church, we are a people of God's own possession. A people who have been saved for the purpose of being zealous for good works. We ought to give ourselves to the beautiful and delightful and beneficial and useful things that God has prepared for us to do. And so we can ask, how are we doing? How are you doing individually? How are we doing collectively? Are we engaging in works that attract our community to Christ? Are we engaging in activities that are beneficial to our neighbors whom we are called to love? Whatever you might, whatever answer you might give, I think we can all agree in every life that there's room for growth. And so I want to spend the rest of our time really thinking about just some of the opportunities that are out there. How do we know what good works God has prepared in advance for you individually and for us collectively to do? Well, how we know where we should be spending our efforts and energies is by considering two factors. First, spiritual gifts. And second, spiritual opportunities. Spiritual gifts and spiritual opportunities. One factor in determining what good works I should be involved in is what gifts has the Holy Spirit given me? And we read about spiritual gifts in Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. There are the gifts of administration, discernment, evangelism, exhortation, faith, giving, helps, hospitality, leadership, mercy, serving, teaching, wisdom, and so on. And I don't believe that God, the Holy Spirit, just gives us one gift per person, but rather he gives us a mix of gifts in varying measures so that we would use those gifts for his purposes. And while we shouldn't limit our gifts to the, or excuse me, we shouldn't limit our ministry to the area of our giftedness, like, oh, I don't, I don't move chairs. I have the gift of teaching. The reality is we should spend most of our time using our gifts as God has given to us to us so that we would be good stewards. But whether or not you have clarity on your, on your gifts and what they are, the second factor is critical as well, spiritual opportunities. Spiritual opportunities are simply opportunities around you to make a spiritual impact. It could be as simple as just praying for a brother or sister in Christ to encourage them. It could be leading a ministry. It could be helping the body of Christ by cleaning up after us when we've met. Or it could be fixing the heater so that it keeps everybody warm and nobody freezes. It could be providing meals for the destitute and sharing the gospel with them in need. Or it could be counseling the addicted, giving them the hope that is found in Christ. Spiritual opportunities is not just doing explicitly spiritual things, but it's, it's doing things that give you opportunity for spiritual impact and having spiritual conversations and promoting kingdom work. 
And so in an effort to stir up one another to loving good deeds, as it says in Hebrews 10, I want to take a few moments to just really help us engage in some creative thinking of what are potential opportunities around us that we might be able to pursue in an effort to be zealous for good works so that the light of Christ will shine brightly around us. When we look around us, both in and outside the church, we think about and we want to think about possible good works, what are beautiful and delightful and beneficial and useful works for us to be involved in. One way to think creatively about the opportunities God has placed before us is to ask the question, where are the dark shadows in our culture? What needs do people have that are the result of the curse of sin? that we can address by bringing the gospel and the sufficient revelation of God to bear? What struggles do people face that the world tries but fails to solve with adequate care and solutions? And when you ask like that, many spiritual opportunities come to the fore. Over 40 years ago, our society has been, or excuse me, for over 40 years, our society has been grappling with the issue of abortion. But what is often treated as a political or a social issue is really an opportunity for the church to be zealous for good deeds. Right now, the Supreme Court is considering uh, a, a law or a decision that would have an impact, possibly even dismantling Roe versus Wade. If that were to happen, I don't know what the impact would be on our state, but let me ask you this, are we ready Is the church of Jesus Christ ready for what would come in terms of the needs in society? Are we ready to care for the women and their partners who all of a sudden don't have the option for abortion and who need the hope of Christ, who need resources, who need compassion and care? Is the church ready for the possibility that there might be a massive increase in opportunities for adoption? I mean, right now, down the street, wherever wherever it is, Right at the light, there's a, the Columbia Pregnancy Center that served 700 women last year. You can expect that if the laws change, that will increase exponentially. Now, that particular clinic was started with a strong connection to the Roman Catholic Church. Now it's more ecumenical. But what would happen if it got overrun by volunteers by Hope Bible Church? There are pregnancy centers in Laurel and Bowie and Annapolis, that are evangelical and gospel-centered and Bible-oriented. And several of our folks are involved in those various ministries. What can we as the church do, or you individually, to promote the gospel and minister to those who are in need? In a world lost in sin and suffering, people turn to all kinds of things that they think will drown their pain. They look at insufficient sources for comfort and escape. Right now, there's a severe severe opioid crisis in our nation. It's estimated that over 10 million people misuse prescription drugs. Deaths by those drugs have gone up exponentially in the last few years and are likely now over 100,000 in 2021. About that many people die from alcohol every year. And of course, millions more turn to alcohol to quiet their troubled souls. Pornography is probably the greatest addiction in and outside the church that no one talks about. Lives and marriages and homes are destroyed 
from the inside out. And today it starts in the preteen years. Beloved, the church of Jesus Christ has the solution to addiction. Every form of it. We have the only hope of the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who believe have the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome their difficulties. Imagine if the church, both our church as well as any other gospel preaching church, became known as a place where the addicted to go could go and find grace and compassion and help and where lasting change can actually take place. Well, education is another area where there's incredible opportunity to be zealous for good deeds. And we could talk about having a full-time school in addition to what we have as a tutorial, and there's a lot of good thinking there, but we can think even broader than that. There are many people in our community who lack skills that are needed. They lack the education to do particular jobs. And because we have the sufficient word of God, because we have the wisdom of Christ in our hands, we can offer the world wisdom on life skills, family roles, financial stewardship, work ethics. Beyond that, we have in this congregation skilled and experienced workers who have the ability to train others who need skills for jobs so that they can provide for themselves and their family. And we can do those things showing the love of God and having opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Or think about this, there are thousands of young people, teens, 20s, around our region, who have grown up in single-parent homes. Some of those homes have a godly parent who loves Christ, but many, in fact most, don't. Many young women and young men need someone to teach them what it means to be a man or a woman made in the image of God and all of the implications that flow from that. How could you personally or we collectively come alongside a young person who needs to be mentored and loved with the love of Christ. Now I'm grateful that in God's common grace, there are all kinds of organizations in the world who are seeking to meet the various needs that people have. I mean, just down the street on Gerwig Lane, we have the Howard County uh, Food uh, Bank. Imagine if that food bank was filled with volunteers from Hope Bible Church who weren't just handing out food, but they were establishing relationships with those who were coming and sharing the love of Christ and the gospel with those who need it. Just across the street from that is Humanum, which provides all kinds of social services. And I've wondered, is there a way for the light of Christ to shine in that arena? I mean, we're sitting right here in a business park. Some have dreamed that someday we'll own all of the buildings here and we'll have a school and a seminary and other ministries. And that's fantastic. But what about right now? There are people working Monday through Friday in these buildings. What are we doing to show the love of Christ to our neighbors? What can we do? I'm sure there are things we could do. Friends, friends I'm not saying that, there, that all of us individually or collectively should be doing all of these things. I'm just trying to help us think collectively of what is possible. What are the needs that are around us? How can we shine the light of Christ and be zealous for good deeds as we look at this dark world around us? Hope Bible Church, no one else in the world has what we have to offer as the church of Jesus Christ. No one else has the gospel of the forgiveness of sins, salvation from the wrath of God, 
the hope of eternal life. No one else has the infinite wisdom of God, His design for life. We have so much to offer this world. Let us not be a people who hide our lamp under a basket. Let's be so zealous for good works that if for whatever reason the Lord were to take us out of this area, that our neighbors would not only notice, but they would care. But more than that, let's be so zealous for good works that the light and the glory of Christ would be put on display so that those who need him would know that's where I can go if I need help. That's where I can go if I need wisdom. That's where I can go if I need truth. That's where I can go if I need forgiveness of sins. That's why he gave himself for us. This is so important that Paul repeats this admonition to be zealous for good deeds twice as he concludes this letter. Look at chapter 3, verse 1, and we'll close with these two reminders. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good deed. And then again in verse 14, as he makes his final appeal, he says, Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, so that they will not be unfruitful. Beloved, this is why we have been redeemed. We've been redeemed from lawlessness, from a life of self-oriented living, to a life of being possessed by Christ and living for His purposes. So let us be fruitful in what He gives us to do. Let's pray. Our great God and Savior, our minds cannot fathom the reality of you in all your glory giving yourself for us. I'm confident that if I could get a greater glimpse of that, then my zeal for good deeds would exponentially increase. And so that is true for each one of us here. We are your people. And so, Lord, help us. Open our eyes to how we can proclaim the goodness of Christ to one another, first of all, as we minister to each other and meet the needs within the body, as we encourage and comfort and admonish and exhort one another and stir one another up to love and good deeds. But then in the overflow, to take the remaining hours of the day and, and the opportunity in our workplaces and in our schools and in this community, to shine the light of Christ, to see His glory displayed for all to see, so that more would come to faith and Christ would be known because He is a great God and worthy to be praised. We pray these things in His name. Amen.